and welcome to The Two View, the cutting-edge educational and interactive show for nurse practitioners and PAs in emergency medicine and urgent care. I'm nurse practitioner Martha Roberts, and I am here with my co-host, Michael Sharma. Mike, how are you? Martha, I am swell. I'm all done with my ED shifts for the month. Uh, my wife have a little date planned with me tonight, and I'm also looking forward to our talk today. So, so glad to join you here, and everybody else, you who are watching right now, so glad you're here with us as well. I love how you said your shifts are done for the month. It's April 28th, but that's cool. Next month will be here soon. <laughs> yeah, I got two whole days. Don't harsh my buzz, okay? Okay, cool. I am also done with my ER shifts for the month, um, although I actually wouldn't mind picking up another one. I have such interesting cases I've seen recently. But anyway, we have killer topics this month, and one of them is a, re- a revisit that needs more attention, and we're going to start off by talking about head bleeds, specifically subarachnoid hemorrhage, and everything irritating and nefarious about it. Even my meninges are a bit of a nefunk thinking about this. I hate funky meninges. Well, next, if one mysterious virus spreading across the globe wasn't enough, it looks like it's time to start paying attention to another one. And what do we do with if we think we spotted it? This one is related to children with nausea, vomiting, and belly pain, a pretty common segment of our urgent care and emergency department practice. You're going to want to change your practice in these patients so this gets sorted out, and we'll show you how. Then we're going to discuss some medical errors in a case of a nurse who gave Vecaronium instead of Versed, and how she is being charged with reckless homicide. Yeah, I think Ravonna Vaught, we've all heard about Ravonna's story here, and so I'm really excited to get into that and hear your take on it as a nurse, uh, and uh, for a bedside nurse at that. Uh, lastly, we're going to go over some guidelines from the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology about heart failure, a huge driver of emergency department admissions and increased morbidity and mortality and changes in the management of heart failure and what that means for us. Uh, don't forget, listeners, boot camp is coming. Okay, so July woo, 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 26th woo. until, yeah, exactly, woo-woo, all the woos out there. So, you know, we have the formal camp, but before that, we have the pharmacology course in late July. You know, Martha, you're saying that NPs have to have a certain pharmacology number of hours to uh, kind of maintain certification, like 25 pharmacology hours. Is that right? Yeah. That is correct. I just renewed through ANCC yesterday. It took me an hour and several glasses of wine, but I did it. And that's right. So come to our course. You can get those pharmacology hours in, and that's a great way to do it. And then the formal camp is from July 28th to 31. It is the main emergency medicine boot camp, the original, with fantastic speakers, cutting-edge literature. It's a must if you want to stay current and present in EM. Or if you just think about getting your tipping your toe in to show you're committed, come out and learn, um, you know, the foundation of our practice. And if you want to attend one of the best ultrasound and procedure courses in between the events, we have those two. We have you covered from head to toe, literally. Well, you're about to cover your head right now with a case and presentation about some more facts with subarachnoid hemorrhage. Let's hear what you have to say. All right, so segment one is about subarachnoid hemorrhage. And as I mentioned, it's a bit of a revisit. Way back when, we did a segment with Dr. Diane Bernbauer on a show about subarachnoid hemorrhage. She had a great talk entitled A Wolf in Sheep's Clothing. It's one of the best and most unusual lectures that we have at boot camp, and it's at our advanced course. It's a great, great talk. There's a lot of cases from that talk, but we pulled out one about subarachnoid hemorrhage and discussed it. But I wanted to bring this back and revisit it for a couple of reasons. Number one, because every once in a while I get 
frustrated thinking about subarachnoid hemorrhage. And number two, regardless of the guidelines, I still feel some clinicians are approaching subarachnoid hemorrhage differently. Each case is truly unique and there are a lot of variables. I want to discuss a case that I recently had in a patient who had a headache that I saw in the ED and how myself and four other clinicians had variable approaches. Amazing. Well, so this gets interesting, so let's go. But before I jump in, though, I have to give major, major kudos to Dr. Malini Singh, who is the vice chair, excuse me, the vice chief of Zuckerberg Sanford General's ED and professor at UCSF, as well as Dr. Steven Straub, who is the assistant medical director at the General right now. Thank you so much for your help on both these cases and the literature that they provided. Okay, so let me paint the picture here for the audience. This is a 40-year-old African-American female with a history of opioid abuse, used to be on Suboxone, hasn't had it in three months, as well as a history, um, she first told me she had a history of migraines, we'll get to that later, domestic violence with, quote, head injury in the past year, but she didn't know what that head injury was, presenting to the ED in the late afternoon as a walk-in patient for six days of a headache. Her history was different each time a clinician questioned her, but we all thought ruling out subarachnoid hemorrhage was needed and not off the table. So that's how that went. Right. We were talking about this one before, Martha. You said that she had an occipital to the back of the headache for almost a week with some photophobia. The lights were bothering her. Um, You told me it started on a Monday, came on slowly. That's usually a reassuring feature for a headache that it came on slowly, not a thunderclap headache. Got a little better on Tuesday. On Wednesday morning, it was worse again and got more severe. Um, she took ibuprofen, good for her, and that helped slightly. But Friday, she's back again being woken up out of her sleep with severe, not even 10 out of 10, 12 out of 10 headache pain. Again, occipital. This is an interesting feature for me that changed apparently radiating down her neck and between both shoulders. Now she's got some right temple pain to go along with her occipital pain. That's worse when she sits up. So some positional features for the headache here. When that headache got her up out of bed Friday, she vomited six times. And that was the thing. You know, we often wonder why someone comes in. Is it just not getting better or did it get worse somehow? For her, it had gotten worse. She couldn't control this new vomiting she was having. Right, Mike. So on top of that, uh, she denied any fever. She didn't look toxic or sick, which is always really important because we're ruling out other things that, you know, could cause this headache like meningitis or infection. She denied any recent trauma. She didn't have a history of hypertension or aneurysm, no vision changes, dizziness, syncope, altered mental status, seizures, confusion, unilateral weakness, facial paralysis, ENT complaints. I asked her everything. She had no respiratory or cardiac symptoms, no other symptoms. She was taking biotin and B12 only, which she's taken for years, hasn't changed the brand or dose. That's a question I like to ask. And that's it. That's all she told me. All right. Well... Like I kind of mentioned, um, there's ways to ask folks why they came into the emergency department today without literally asking them, so why'd you come in today for this problem that's been going on for a week? 
comes across the wrong way sometimes. And so um, I like to leave it kind of open-ended, but you know, maybe if they're not quite sure, you can kind of dig in and ask more specific questions here. Was it like the headache? Was it more severe or just not going away? How long, uh, you know, the new neck pain, did that concern you? Some other new symptoms? Like we talked about, the vomiting was the trigger for this patient. That was it. She had been done, you know, she already done. Now this was it, the final straw. Um, figuring out what that change is, if there is a change. Sometimes there isn't. I think that's really key for our practice here. Right. Absolutely, Mike. <clears throat> Excuse me. We need to do that with every case. Sometimes it's a conundrum of things, and sometimes there's a laundry list of issues, but usually you can pinpoint one major change or an issue that happened in the complaints that were lasting uh, you know, more than a couple of hours. So days of the symptoms or suffering sometimes you know, can occur in various uh, ways. But when we think about that change, we kind of want to identify it for that patient. There are also some key words. I like to call them trigger words. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. When patients tell me and they have a headache, because those make me feel like mm, maybe I need to look for something more peculiar here. Uh, so the, the key trigger words from this particular woman's statements were severe, now vomiting, I can't control it, some positional changes, I've never had a headache like this before, uh, woke me up out of sleep. All alert signals are being shown across my face here. So the differential for headache can be broad and complicated, as you know, Mike, but we're going to go on to focus on the key aspects of subarachnoid hemorrhage. So if you're ruling out subarachnoid hemorrhage, this is for you. We want to explain why and how we want to approach this and how to search for it. After evaluating this patient, I discussed the case with my attending, and the patient said that she had had migraines, which made me think possibly it could be that. I don't know. She still had these trigger words that really upset me. Um, despite her pristine, we're talking pristine. That's my favorite word to use when doing a neurological exam. Um, also Greg Henry, shout out to him. Pristine neurological exam. She looked comfortable, no distress. Her exam was pretty normal. She was sleepy. Uh, but then again, it was 11 o'clock at night. She had been waiting in the waiting room for six hours, maybe seven, answering all my questions. She still had a headache. It was eight out of 10. So we ended up doing this migraine cocktail, Compazine, my favorite drug. Shout out to you, Compazine. Some Benadryl, which is debatable, we know, when co-administering with antidopaminergics, some Tylenol, and some Zofran. We also gave our leader a fluid, and we ordered a CT angiogram of the head and neck. So hold on to that info for just a moment. But why did we do that? Well, the key point here that I want to talk about uh, in the case of subarachnoid hemorrhage and why some people have a different approach to this is the imaging that we order. Mike, the traditional approach, as you know, for looking for subarachnoid hemorrhage would be to first start with a non-contrast head CT with a new generation scanner in patients who present within six hours of onset of a headache. Of course, this is if you're searching again for subarachnoid hemorrhage. We'll talk about other differential diagnosis in a moment. The initial scan is um, a great way to have your, your imaging done, but you have to add on a couple of other things if you are concerned about subarachnoid hemorrhage, if out of the six-hour window. If the patient presents after the six-hour 
window, the sensitivity of the non-contrast head CT goes down, and a lumbar puncture, or LP, is the gold standard of test that comes next. That will also help you differentiate between the causes of the headache for this patient. Now, considering the CT angiogram, okay, that will detect aneurysms, but it's only helpful if the aneurysm is the cause of the subarachnoid hemorrhage. And only about 85% of the time, aneurysms are the cause of the hemorrhage. So as you know, there can be other causes of the hemorrhage. Uh, If you don't do the LP, you may miss blood in the CSF, for example, from a hypertensive bleed that is from something other than an aneurysm or miss small aneurysms less than four millimeters. You could use shared decision-making at this point if the patient refuses the lumbar puncture. In that case, uh, it is important to note in your chart and discuss and have that uh, attending physician in there with you as well. But still, I would discharge that patient against medical advice. I ran this case by Jim Roberts. He agreed discharging this patient against medical advice because their workup is technically not complete per your medical uh, opinion. So overall, a non-contrast head CT is done within six hours of the onset of this headache. And if it's negative, you can feel pretty confident that you've ruled out subarachnoid hemorrhage. Um, But if it's been longer, in this case it was six days, then an LP is suggested. Whew! You know, you talk about how a lot of variety and how the different clinicians approach this case. I agree with darn near everything you did out of the gate here. Like, I would have also, with this radiating neck pain, you know, from the head, ordered the CT angiogram. I'm more of a metoclopramide person than a compensating person, but, you know, potato, potato. Um, so, yeah, you know, I think we're, we're both of us are on the same page. You know, we're going to cite a clinical policy from the American College of Emergency Physicians, um, authored by Goodwin et al., reviewed and approved in 2019. So pretty recent, you know, it covers the critical issues and the evaluation and management of adult patients coming to the ED with acute headache. Uh, Be sure to check this out, review those guidelines, all of these guidelines, everything we talk about today, it's always going to be on our website at twoview.fireside.fm. That is the number two view.fireside.fm. So I am going to just mention one other thing is the Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage rule for headache Mm -hmm. evaluation. This is on MD calc so you can take a look at it i'm actually looking at it right now um age greater than 40 neck pain or stiffness witness loss of consciousness onset during exertion thunderclap headache limited neck flexion on examination so if all the answers to those questions are no this patient can be ruled out for subarachnoid hemorrhage using this rule which was 100 percent sensitive for subarachnoid hemorrhage in its validation and uh, the author of this is Ian, Ian Style, um, and he is the professor and, professor and chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Ottawa. So you can take a look at that. It's fun to kind of plug in some information there. I like that. Okay, moving on to the CT angiogram, all right? I definitely felt, because this patient was complaining of the neck pain as well, that was bothersome to me. You know, I found stranger things. Uh, when you when you look at patients who have a headache and neck pain, um, certainly if there was trauma or that patient that started a new workout or weightlifting vertebral, artery dissection is always on, 
on the differential. But How about the chiropractic adjustment, right? Chiropract- That's another thing too, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, when Satan comes and does the adjustments, you need to double check. So, so <laughs> in my opinion about chiropractors. So some physicians right now and some clinicians, advanced practice providers, have slowly moved away from the non-contrast head CT and lumbar puncture to a CT angiogram. Okay, of the head and the neck. In this case, it might be um, uh, debatable, okay, which is why we sort of had some discussions about it amongst our staff, because um, patients overwhelmingly prefer, it seems, the CT angiogram because they're not getting a needle in their back. However, the American College still recommends that we do the non-contrast head CT and lumbar puncture for these patients, unless, of course, it's under six hours. So there's some challenges definitely here. Personally, doing a non-head, uh, non-contrast head CT and LP will give you information, lots of it. But if the patient does have an aneurysm and that was the cause of the subarachnoid hemorrhage, then you ultimately have to go to the CT angiogram anyway for further evaluation and possibly an MRI. So you should note that. Right. Um, something else to talk about too is that, you know, let's say you give some sort of abortive treatment for the migraine, whether it's my comp, sorry, your compazine or, or my, you know, um, metoclopramide here, uh, any treatment can resolve even bad headaches. So just because you relieve the pain with a quote migraine cocktail, that doesn't mean what you're relieving is a migraine. You know, Dr. Birnbaum reminded us of a study that showed that, you know, patients, can get relief from anything, you know, from Tylenol, vitamins, you know, essentially placebo to relieve their headache and things get better. And so naturally, the the mind wants to create a story. We are storytelling creatures. And so they connect relief of the medication, or relief of the pain to that medication, and they, they consider it kind of a benign thing. Um, the relief of that headache does not always mean that some arachnoid hemorrhage. So be careful. It's great that you want to get your patients out of suffering. Still do the workup. Yeah, absolutely, Mike. Um, That patient could have done a dance and spun around 10 times, and Diane reminds us that that doesn't necessarily mean that, um, you know, nothing really bad had happened there. So one thing I'd like to add to this already complicated workup and diagnosis is that of the case of idiopathic intracranial hypertension on the table. I've seen it. I've had a couple cases, surprisingly, I guess because I've been looking for it over the last couple of months. And we know that that this is the buildup of pressure around the brain. Um, sometimes we don't know what this is caused from. Um, the incidence of intracranial um, hypertension uh, in the general public is thought to be about one in 100,000. It seems to want to be more present in obese young females Uh, Their incidence is about 20 per 100,000, and it still occurs in men and children, uh, but with substantially lower frequency, it can happen suddenly, for example, as a result of a severe head injury, stroke, or even a brain abscess, Um, could just again be idiopathic. Patients will complain of blurry vision, double vision, loss of peripheral vision, okay, super important. You really got to work, I mean, again, every show, doing a good neurological exam Testing peripheral vision, sometimes we get a little lazy. So maybe just do that for fun on your next patient with a headache. Patients with um, increased intracranial hypertension may also have a stiff neck, ataxia, 
variable headache levels of pain and pain in their head that changes with position changes. Also nausea, vomiting. The LP here, very important, can be both diagnostic and therapeutic. My two favorite words to say in one sentence, diagnostic and therapeutic. Diagnosis is based on a modified dandy criteria, which can include lumbar puncture, opening pressure, um, and checking out the spinal fluid, sending that down to the lab as well. You can look for papilledema and nerve palsies and level of consciousness. So again, think about that diagnosis as well on the table. Now, those of you who have heard of pseudotumor cerebri and you're thinking, well, this sounds an awful lot like pseudotumor cerebri, it's the exact same thing, okay? So the terminology of idiopathic intracranial hypertension, pseudotumor cerebri, we're describing the same condition here. The question I have, though, about a non-contrast head CT in the setting of pseudotumor cerebri or, or IIH here, would we see changes on a non-con CT with idiopathic intracranial hypertension? Um, you look through the literature and you can find that's a 2014 study you shared with me about the Journal of Neuroradiology. You're reviewing some non-contrast CT imaging of patients presenting who were later diagnosed with idiopathic intracranial hypertension. Um, so what they said was there was this novel imaging sign for the diagnosis of this condition. And what they described it was a venous attenuation sign. This can be evaluated on routine, non-enhanced, reformatted sagittal CT images of the brain, where you look at the sinuses and they're identified, kind of like the sign is identified by it's looking you know, relatively hyper dense to adjacent brain parenchyma here. So that's a tough one. Will your neuroradiologist know to look for that? Hey, if you tell them some things when you order the thing about, uh, order the CT with regards to blurry vision, things like that, maybe that'll key them into, oh, I've got to look for this venous attenuation sign. Please look at that paper in the liner loads from 2014. And, um, you know, if you're looking for something like that, maybe even call the radiologist as you're ordering and saying, hey, I'm sending this person into the scanner. Here's what I really want you to look for. So it really keys them into this. Yeah. So in another study, MRI may tend to be our best way to diagnose this idiopathic intracranial hypertension, but oftentimes it's a diagnosis of exclusion. There can be some other findings on MRI. I don't want to go too far away from subarachnoid hemorrhage here. I just wanted to put that on your radar. And consulting neuro is definitely on the agenda for any of these patients that we've talked about. So with that being said, what happened to our patient? Well, for one, we opted to do that CT angiogram, okay? The patient was then a sign-out to make matters more complicated. We had a student involved in the case and a resident, and pending the results of the CTA was where I left this case. The oncoming provider here did not like our idea, okay? Made it very clear that doing a CTA was bad and questioned our lack of LP, so we explained to him why we chose the CTA over the non-con and LP, and she said, you know, whatever, I guess this is what we're doing. In the end, he discovered that the CT angiogram was negative for any acute process, and then he went to go on to consent the patient for an LP. Her headache was a zero out of 10 at the time, and the physician and herself used shared decision-making for the LP, and she chose not to do it. 
And a follow-up call was placed three days later, and she was still headache-free, and she was following with outpatient neurology. Oh, that's good. Okay. Yeah, yeah you know, it's a really interesting situation there. I mean, uh, I guess you could say if you don't do the LP first, are you delaying definitive diagnosis? If you don't do the CT angiogram first, are you potentially exposing the patient to more harm by not potentially – if you catch it on the CT angiogram, then you're done. You know, and I guess you could have more than one thing going on that you could miss the second thing. But, like, in my opinion, I feel like you do the CT angiogram. If you diagnose it that way, then you've already figured it out. Just kind of like doing an ultrasound on a kid with, you know, acute abdominal pain. You probably won't find the appendicitis because we know ultrasound is not that sensitive. But if you find it, well, then maybe you're done without having to expose them to that further risk there. Real tricky case. Lots of variables. What's protective for us is the literature, ASAP clinical policies. They're pretty clear on expectations, you know, for workup and some options here. And I think having those guidelines to follow is supportive in, in, if you follow those uh, guidelines. When you read more about CT angiogram, you read more about MRI, um, then that might be an interesting update to those guidelines. So doing a deep dive in the literature, being able to cite that, uh, you know, maybe you have a little uh, bookmarks file for some of these interesting cases um, that's kind of handy to have when we're getting into these tough discussions and variable practice styles here. Um, what can be very handy to inform your practice and how you future practice medicine is these callbacks. I love that you, someone called them back. I know you love to do these callbacks, Martha. So yeah. like maybe you called them back and checked on them a little bit and, um, you know, saw what happened to them. So that's great that you do that. And that can really, you know, uh, for, you know, inform that practice. I have learned so much from calling my patients back. So, so much. Like I say, pretty much every episode, I give them all my email too. And uh, it's just, it's just a great way to learn and to ensure that we did the right thing for people or the wrong thing, you know? So, yeah, no, I like that a lot. I'm going to be, I, I have been reconsidering this more and more about like giving them the opportunity to follow back up with me. And I think I'm going to be doing that more for, for certain cases, especially, you know, in this fast paced world, often we'll discharge with paces, you know, uh, you know, tests pending. And let's say they, they look on the portal and it says, oh, this is positive. This is negative. Well, maybe they're not so clear as to what that means. And so I'd love to be yeah. able to have them reach out to me instead of me calling them. And I get a, hey, the voicemail hasn't been set up yet or whatever else. And, and I kind of like lose them to follow up, so to speak. Yeah. So. Yeah. You know, but before we go to the next segment, it just it, it helps me, reminds me why we do what we do. And I'm not in this profession to make money, honestly, because I feel like I don't make enough. Um, I'm, I'm in it because I really, I get excited. I love taking care of people. I love being there for them. I love doing um, the best thing for them. And I'm telling you, doing callbacks will change your life and your career. So just do it. Why not? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm convinced. Okay. Do it. <laughs> Let's talk about this next mysterious virus, number two in our lives right now, and it's time to start keeping an eye out for it. The Centers for Disease Control recently put out a health alert network health advisory message about clusters of children developing significant liver injury, even to the point of acute liver failure, who tested positive for adenovirus. If you're listening from Alabama or a neighboring state in the southern U.S., this is especially important for you because at the time of this recording, all the cases so far have been located in Alabama. It doesn't mean it's not in other places. It's safest to assume that it's everywhere. 
as just kind of under the radar, like COVID kind of was in the early days. The World Health Organization has also published a disease outbreak notice, counting, at the time of this recording, 169 cases of acute hepatitis of unknown origin in children. The vast majority of recorded cases have been in the United Kingdom, where they've logged over two-thirds of those cases. About This is crazy. About 10% of these children have required a liver transplant. It's that intense here. Let's talk about how this potential emerging health threat should change the way we practice, at least temporarily. Yeah, well, so quick background. Hepatitis is a catch-all term for some sort of inflammation in the liver. We usually think of viral infections like hepatitis, hepatitis A, B, C, and then we think about hepatitis because these are the most common causes of hepatitis in the U.S., but it's important that we don't anchor on those uh, infections when we think about hepatitis. Liver inflammation can be caused by other viral infections, underlying pathology, diseases, medical conditions, alcohol, uh, medications, toxins, um, mushrooms, uh, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Uh, last episode, shout out. Shout back out. To last episode, yeah, really good. <laughs> um, how are patients with this acute hepatitis of unknown origin presenting to clinicians? Well, ages of patients have ranged all the way from one month to 16 years old. And the most common symptom of this hepatitis, they were abdominal pain, diarrhea, and vomiting, just like other presentations of hepatitis. And frankly, lots of other viral gastroenteritis cases most patients with hepatitis are afebrile, but not all of them. The clue, of course, is going to be jaundice, something that will tip you off that something is going on beyond your typical viral gastroenteritis. And here's how our practice needs to change, in my opinion. We need to be emphasizing looking for this more to caregivers or pediatric patients. Tell your moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and whoever else, be on the lookout for jaundice, changes in skin color, changes in eye color, and uh, worsening pain, of course, but specifically right upper quadrant pain. I'm not usually a fan of overanalyzing colors of poo and pee, but in liver failure, we know urine may look dark orange or even brown or tea-colored, and stool may look light-colored. Think uh, mashed potatoes and not just, you know, hot dog mustard. Those could be additional clues, especially in patients who may have difficulty localizing their pain because they're very young, or maybe they have skin tones like me where jaundice can be hard to pick out. Yeah, so I don't know why it is. How come when we talk about diseases, any disease at all, and we mention a food that I don't even necessarily like, like hot dog mustard, but I'm hungry, you know? I don't know. Anyway. I'm always hungry. Yeah. So. No change <laughs> right. here. I'm at baseline. So, right. So let's say you decide to run some tests on this patient who you think has acute hepatitis. Many of the patients had AST and ALT levels greater than 500. We know lots of patients with viral illnesses and even some people with no symptoms at all can have temporary small bumps in their AST and ALT. Be careful about jumping over any abnormality here. Um, in these patients with acute hepatitis of unknown origin, none of them tested positive for the common hepatitis A to E viruses. Almost half of them tested positive for adenovirus. Understandably, the question is, did they test for SARS-CoV-19? Of those patients that were tested, 20 of the 169 recorded in the World Health Organization outbreak um, noticed tests positive for COVID and had a co-infection of COVID and adenovirus. 
I'm hearing some folks talk about how a lot of these patients had like COVID previously, like it's showing up three months after an acute COVID infection. I'm not sure if that's like locked in necessarily at that point. That's just kind of like more um, rumor than anything else. I'm curious to look and see if that information develops more. Could this be a feature of long COVID in kids? Interesting. And I think, you know, more to follow there. How do we treat these patients? Well, usually with hepatitis, we're treating based on etiology of severity. Uh, we figure out what's wrong and fix that problem if it's secondary to a different problem. And then usually it's supportive care, dealing with, you know, um, fluids and getting their vomiting and diarrhea to slow down, replacing fluids, stuff like that. So you know, what's going on here? And what do we do about it as urgent care and emergency medicine clinicians? I think common things being common in our pukey-poopy pediatric patients, I think it'd be an overreaction to draw blood and check LFTs on every single well-appearing pediatric patient coming into your setting with non-specific abdominal pain and gastroenteritis symptoms. Again, gastroenteritis, that implies vomiting and diarrhea, not just one or the other. In a patient having more specific hepatitis symptoms, like, you know, jaundice, worsening right upper quadrant abdominal pain, it's still important to test for other reasons of hepatitis or other reasons of elevated LFTs in patients first. Test for all the hepatitis A3 viruses, test for COVID-19, because we've seen LFT elevations in COVID-19 infections. What about gallstones? How about toxins? How about asking about acetaminophen or even alcohol use in young children? Um, at the same time, you might as well test for adenovirus. The CDC is recommending adenovirus nucleic acid amplification testing, NAAT testing, or PCR testing specifically in pediatric patients with hepatitis of unknown etiology. This can be run on blood or stool or rectal swabs or even respiratory specimens if you got them. Whole blood testing may be more accurate than plasma testing if you're doing some sort of a serum testing for adenovirus based on some anecdotal evidence. So the CDC is also requesting that clinicians notify them if they are caring for patients under the age of 10 that may have this acute hepatitis of unknown etiology. We will, of course, have links to all of the CDC and World Health Organization warning signs as well as contact information for the CDC if you see one of these patients. So check out our show notes, and that is twoview.fireside.fm. Hey, Martha, right. real quick, you uh, you enjoy uh, talking about how interactive our podcast is. We've got a question here for uh, from uh, the YouTube. Okay, so our Ken NKN, hello there. He's asking, or she, sorry, I didn't mean to assume, does CMV, cytomegalovirus, cause pathological jaundice? You know, just the, the condition of jaundice is not necessarily pathologic, but it's whatever is causing the jaundice to be pathologic. So, yeah. yes, a congenital mm -hmm. cytomegalovirus can cause jaundice. Can it happen um, with kids who catch it later on in life? I want to say yes, but I'm not fully up on my CMV infection. So that's another thing to look for if you're going to do a viral panel here. Right. So jaundice, like you said, is the manifestation of, you know, it's a symptom. Um, but it can be a manifestation of congenital CMV. And that, you yeah. know, presents as neonatal hepatitis or uh, some other uh, form of this virus. Um, but... Uh, you know, that's actually a good idea. Maybe we should uh, spend more time talking about CMV on our next podcast. Well, there you go. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I, I think with a kid like this, you're who's like got rip-roaring ASD and LT levels, 
you're going to plot all the stops. You're probably going to be testing for mm -hmm. all the things, right? Mm -hmm. I, I mentioned, you know, all the different hepatitis A to E viruses, COVID-19. You know, there's a lot of these like BioFire is one common brand name of these viral panels. So these kids who we know could be on the hook for a liver transplant, you're probably testing for all the things. If, if for no other reason than for disease surveillance, you know, what do you do if someone has CMV? It's like, Okay, you yeah. know, you got CMV. I don't know if there's any sort of specific antivirals or whatever you do there. It might just be more for information gathering. Well, the other thing is the other comment in here that I thought was interesting was, uh, <coughs> excuse me, the, pa uh, the patient. The person said, thank God I stumbled here for the first time. I should be here and not listening to the Joe Rogan podcast. LOL. <laughs> All right, let's move on to segment three. We'll keep our eye on the questions. We have about 26 seven some people watching so uh the next segment is going to talk about a recent and specific case of medical errors and i definitely want feedback on this if i if i can hear from some of you first i'd like to remind you if you're doing a simple google search you'll find thousands of law firms begging you to sue medical professionals from technicians to nurses to advanced practice providers to doctors second with that being said we have to admit as a medical team in this world that medical errors are real and they do happen like a lot. A lot, but the cause of the medical error is from a variety of reasons. Could it be from clinician inexperience? Could it be just m using good judgment, but in the end making the wrong decision when there was a fork in the road? Maybe there were some infection control issues. Maybe medication errors will come into play in our discussion today. Some communication issues, you know, a kind of a he said, she said kind of a thing, or just general quality issues overall. In the emergency department and probably in the urgent care clinic as well, we find that lots of the medical errors come from things like adverse drug events. Okay, so a drug given correctly, but there was a side effect. Okay, improper transfusions or transfusion reactions, straight up misdiagnosis, which there's again, there's lots of reasons for that too, undertreating, overtreating. And sometimes there's even issues with patient identifiers and doing the right thing, but for the wrong patient. Medical errors are more commonly seen in ages of extremes, so the very young and the very old as well. Certainly, plenty of factors play a role in medical errors, but we're going to focus specifically on the improper drug selection and delivery for a patient and a real-life case that if you're remotely related to healthcare, you've heard about this case. Yeah, so this case involves a bedside nurse, um, former nurse named Redonda Vaught, and Vaught she was criminally prosecuted for her fatal drug error that occurred in 2017 in Nashville, Tennessee. And Vaught faces three to six years in prison for neglect and one to two years for, not, uh, for negligent homicide as a defendant with no prior convictions. And um, it's received a lot of attention in the news outlet coverage as well as the nursing and medical world. Vaught's trial has been closely watched by all of us. Uh, I don't know anyone that hasn't mentioned it to me in the last couple of weeks yeah. that I work with, and um, <clears throat> it is upsetting. Medical errors are generally handled by professional licensing boards or civil courts, um, and criminal prosecutions like this one are really, really rare. This is not something that the general public tends to see. So what happened in this case? What did this nurse do? Well, Vault was involved with a patient named Charlene Murphy, 
who died at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in December of 2017. The neglect charge stemmed from allegations that Vaught did not properly monitor Murphy after she was injected with the wrong drug. Murphy, who was 75 years old, was admitted to Vanderbilt with a brain injury. At the time of the error, the patient's condition was improving, and she was being prepped for discharge, actually, from the hospital. And uh, so without the error, the patient might still be alive. That was what the argument is here. Murphy uh, was prescribed Versed to calm her down before she was getting scanned in an MRI. So Nurse Vaught was tasked to retrieve the Versed from a computerized medication cabinet uh, in the radiology suite, from what I understand. But instead, uh, what happened was she grabbed Vecuronium. Vecuronium is a paralyzing agent, not a sedative, not an anxiolytic. According to an investigation report filed in her court case, the nurse, uh, you know, overlooked is one way to say this, I suppose, several warning signs as she withdrew the wrong drug, including the fact that Versed's a liquid, but Vecuronum is a powder. You've got to reconstitute it. That's pretty unusual for a lot of drugs. And then she injected the patient and left her to be scanned. Uh, the patient was unmonitored in the CT scanner. By the time the error was discovered, Murphy was brain dead and later passed away. Ms. Vaught did admit her mistake while on shift and in real time, according to coverage of the event, but it was not enough to correct the issue and save that patient's life. There is a lot of controversial talk about, well, a lot of this, you know, case, frankly, but, you know, one of them is, was this uh, error escalated properly through the system promptly enough? And, and that leads to more questions about system issues and things like that. I just had to take a really deep breath because I, I, I feel this is just terrible for so many reasons. But what I really want to say that's upsetting me the most um, is that, keep in mind, this nurse's action was way before COVID, okay? This occurred in 2017. I'm worried that our burned-out nursing team will be more complacent, you know, or prone to errors at this pivotal time in medicine. Vaught testified that she allowed herself to become complacent and distracted while using the medication cabinet. She didn't double-check. Which drug um, had been withdrawn despite multiple opportunities? She even went on to say later, she said she knew that the reason this patient is no longer here was because of her. And this is so heart-wrenching to hear. Now, Mike, before I was an NP, I spent close to six years as a bedside RN. Two years of scribing before that and two years in outpatient oncology office. Um, as a PA, you all don't get that bedside experience. And kind of a side note, I was just wondering, in the case of PAs, not just you, generally speaking, versus NPs making medical errors um, is different. I was wondering if you would weigh in on that idea. You know, I'm going to briefly and collo uh, collegially push back on the idea that, you know, PAs don't get bedside experience before I answer. You know, many do. Uh, there's one recent study by the PA Education Association that found that successful applicants to PA school on average, they've got over a year of direct patient care experience prior to entering PA school. Tip of the old hat to Stephen Pasquini, a PA at www.thepalife, for highlighting that PAA study in a recent article of his. Stepping gingerly off the soapbox, is there a difference 
between a PA and an NP making a medical error? In, in general, I don't think so. You know, I think the biggest difference might be, you know, in terms of who's on the hook, whose pocketbooks are being reached into, whether the clinician in question, PA or NP, has any sort of collaborative agreement with a physician. If so, there may be some degree of shared liability versus all of it, you know, falling on the PA or the NP's head if they're not in a collaborative agreement. And as you know, more and more um, states, NP's and PA's, um, the collaborative agreement can sometimes be going away. I'm not a medical legal expert yet, but that is my armchair take there. Yeah, a little soapbox of my own right now. Back in the day when I was applying for nurse practitioner school, I wasn't allowed to apply to places like Georgetown um, unless I had at least five years of bedside nursing. Now you see these direct entry programs of nurse to NP, and quite frankly, I think those are horrible ideas. I've had several students come up to me from my school that I teach at and have said, oh, you know, as soon as I finish my second degree nursing, I'm going to go right to midwifery school. I'm going to go right to be an NP. And I said, no, that's a horrible idea. You need to practice as a nurse. You have to get some bedside experience. This is absurd. And any school that's letting you in without doing that is doing you a disservice and the public a disservice. So I'm just putting that out there. Anyway, I I personally think that that will affect our medical errors in the future because you just don't have the darn experience. I agree. I mean, you know, we're talking about being a nurse practitioner, and this is advanced nursing. How how can you be good at advanced nursing if you haven't experienced basic, you know, bedside nursing yet? You know, so yeah, I I, I totally agree with you. Yeah. Anyway, but that leads me to my next question, Mike. Have you ever made a medical error? But before you answer, okay, I'm going to selfishly start with my own. Okay, because I'm never going to forget it. It, it's, I feel like it was just yesterday. And listen to this, okay? So many years ago, I had a patient I was seeing with a physician assistant, and I was, excuse me, physician associate. Oh, I was, <laughs> okay, I was a bedside nurse at the time. And guess what? There was a patient with a headache. But by the way, it wasn't a subarachnoid hemorrhage, so don't worry about that. <laughs> so frequently, this patient came in for DHE or dihydrogotamine treatment. And DHE is used to treat migraines. I had been practicing for quite some time. I had not made any errors. I had done extensive training. I did two fellowships in trauma, one in the ED. Both were six months long. I had a lot, a lot of skills. Um, so I was a good nurse. I cared about safety and the appropriate treatment and following orders, which I still do today. So back to the story. The medication was available, this DHE, in IM injection as well as IV form. So intramuscular injection versus intravenous. In the past, the patient had received this medication intravenously multiple times. I had had given it to her that way. So the two of us, the PA and I, had a conversation about treating the patient. So I went to go retrieve the DHE. And when I got into the room, uh, the patient was excited I was giving her a medication. And by the way, you can give that vial, IV or IM. It's the same dose. You don't reconstitute it or anything like that. You uh, Things may be different now with the medication, but it's not like um, I you pull a bottle and you have to do something different with it if the medicine is given IM. But anyway, when I went back to check the order, okay, after I gave it to her, um, I noticed it was not there. But given my discussion with the PA, I thought we were giving it intravenously. But I left the room to chart the medication administration. We know that was already my first mistake. Um, It was for intramuscular injection and not intravenous. 
And I really had not discovered that mistake until I went outside the room and noticed that the PA had ordered it this way. So foolishly, I administered the medication thinking that after my conversation with the PA that he would be ordering it intravenously, given her history and our discussion. We went back and talked about this. And he said, uh, no, I, I wanted it to be given IM. Uh, and I hadn't done that. So sometimes in these cases where medications can be given in various routes safely, conversations can be had with the person that ordered it and adjusted. I'm not saying that these actions are correct. I'm just saying that I've had these conversations before. The PA didn't want to change the order, which is totally appropriate. He can, you know, that's what he wanted to do. Um, and it was considered a medical error. We went in to talk to the patient who demanded um that she only received the medication intravenously and she was not upset at all. She was like, I didn't want a shot. I already had an IV. Um, this is how I always get it. And that's that's it for her. She didn't want to pursue any legal or aggressive approaches. And with that being said, I certainly felt that that PA never trusted me again as a nurse. But I definitely had to go through um, a lot of remediation, sleepless nights, and feeling horrible about the fact that I made a mistake. So like, uh, so quick question. Um the remediation was something you put on yourself or like, did you actually have to go to like an official something there? Yes. I had to do a three hour course on medication administration. And then for the next 30 medications, didn't matter what they were. I had to have a secondary nurse check it off in a little booklet every time. You know, I I would beat yourself about this one, right? I I can see this going the other way as well, right? You, You see the order for IM administration, you push the med IM and the PA comes back around you later and says, hey, why'd you give it IM? We talked about how we were going to give it IV. The patient has an IV. This is the perfect situation for the clarifying question, right? Uh, noting the discrepancy between the discussion and the order, and that requires, you know, doing the the, the the different rights. They talk about the, you know, there's probably at this point seven or eight different rights, right? But, you know, right medication, right dose, right patient, right uh, whatever, you know. Right day of the week, uh, right temperature. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. yeah, right right shoelaces, uh, you know, right wristwatch. But anyways, so, yeah, all those rights. You know, so you got to note the discrepancy by doing that. Um, and you got to find the PA, and then you diplomatically ask them, hey, um, what the correct administration is supposed to be here? It's important that we as PAs and NPs are setting the stage in our relationships with the staff, that the staff even feels comfortable asking these questions in these times of uncertainty, uh, especially when the chips are are on the table here and things are moving real fast. It's also important that the healthcare systems we work in enable these discussions and environments with lots of moving people and parts, like with like a messaging system or or walkie-talkies or something like that. Yeah, so clearly in the case of Vought, she gave the wrong medication, and it was reckless. Uh, it was, and um, my case was different, but both cases are errors. Yeah, again, I, in the end, she wasn't going to have an IM anyway, so uh, in situation, and obviously way different than, than a nurse Vought situation here. Well, let's, let's circle back around to Ms. Vought and what happened per her testimony. The case in some way hinges on the nurse's use of this electronic medication cabinet. We've all seen these before. Vaughn initially tried to withdraw Versed from a cabinet, and those of you that use this, you know you type in the first few letters of the medication, in this case, VE, into the search function, which out without realizing, rather, that you should be looking not for Versed, which is a brand name, but the generic name, that's the name the medication was underneath uh, this medication cabinet, which is Midazolam. 
So you put in VE, nothing pops up, but instead what shows up is first ed. Okay, uh, and uh, I think the cabinet, there's an issue there as far as No, Vecaronium. Like, it was Vecaronium that showed that, up. That did pop up. Okay, so I, don't, I, yeah. I forget if nothing popped up. And then she had to override to get. She did an override, essentially. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A- so there was some degree of override, and then she searched for VE again, and then the cabinet said, "Ah, oh, I think you're looking for Vecaronium." Right. So that was the f- one of the first issues. There were two issues really within that, and then there were a bunch of other warning signs after that, and you know this whole thing about the Vecaronium being powder, and she had to, you know, reconstitute it, and finally when she injected it, uh, it said on it on the bottle look directly at this the bottle cap red warning paralyzing agent and man there were the patient died patient died i don't know how else to to say like what was going on in this nurse's mind that she ignored all these issues it wasn't just one it wasn't just two it was multiple things so in general here are some i mean i I don't know. I'd love some feedback. You can certainly email us and and, and give us some some feedback of what you think. It's upsetting. You know, it's upsetting to the nursing world. Are we using this as an example? But was what she did really wrong? I mean, it was. It was wrong. Um, the lessons in general I have learned from this case, I'm taking back to our APP team. In general, I never give a nurse a verbal order unless it's in a code. Truly, there is no other reason... Uh, to not have a written order. And those meds in a code are also triple checked by a second nurse and by me before they are given. And second, I always have a conversation with the nurse about the plan. I do this by first seeing the patient after the nurse sees them or we see them together. We discuss the plan, but I always say, let me put in the order. And even for lab draws or tests, I always say, um, let me put in the order. Sometimes even despite that, an error can still occur. And if you think about it, drawing a purple top on a patient that only needed a gold top is a medical error of sorts. It's the wrong test. Again, levels of error, but still error. Do we take nurses to court for drawing a full lab panel and sending them down to the lab despite them not being ordered? No, we don't, but it's still an error. You know, I, I love the discussion you have with the nurses of the game plan, you know, out of the gate so your staff knows what to expect during the encounter, whether it's going to be a, a quick turnaround or it's maybe going to be serial testing over several hours where they have to go back in and redraw at a certain point, maybe something unusual. I am also in favor of putting in the written order. I understand there's a lot of pushback and mostly from more senior clinicians about C-P-O-E, Computerized Provider Order Entry. Going to the computer. And, you know, it's a, honestly, it's a pain in the butt when you've got to walk all the way back across the department to your workstation, log back into the computer, find the patient, end of the medication error. Like, I'm, I'm not, you know, immune to, like, sighing and having to do that long walk of shame when I forget to put an order in or something like that. You know, like, it's annoying sometimes. I understand the pushback. I mentally push back against it as well. I love the convenience of verbally ordering a little bit of Zofran or on Dancetron, a little bit of acetaminophen for a patient. But, but in the end, this is a safety issue on all fronts. It's a patient safety issue, most importantly. It's also a nursing safety issue for their licenses. And in the end, it's a clinician safety issue. It's our safety, especially in this you know post-vaught era, if you want to call it that. It protects us as well as clinicians, to have a written order record, rather, of what we ordered. You know, what if things are moving fast? You shot something out to other nurses or to other staff members or, a, you know, physician, an APP, PA, nurse practitioner, 
two people mishear what you said. And they said, oh, no, we, we both agree you said this and not that. Well, now you're on the hook, you know. And in yeah. the end, it's a lot safer for you to have a written record of what you ordered. It's one more layer of Swiss cheese, if you like that Swiss cheese analogy, of reducing medical errors by having multiple layers of safety nets. Hmm, cheese. Um, all right. Now I'm hungry Mike. again. Yeah. <laughs> I want to just wrap this up because um, we need to get to our last segment. I basically just want to conclude by saying you may make a mistake. Okay, we understand that. Um, you may work with a student and something bad happens with them and you're responsible for managing them. You may order the wrong med. You may make the wrong diagnosis. Our radars as clinicians in healthcare, uh, they need to be high all the time. In fact, if your blood pressure isn't at least 140 over 90 every shift all day, maybe we're not on high enough alert. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm kidding. It doesn't need to be like that. There are ways to work and not be stressed, but um, insightful and resourceful and having our raters on. My tips, again, put in the orders for the patients, have discussions with your team, don't leave anything open-ended. You are allowed a full hard stop. If a nurse gives the wrong medicine and you ordered something else, that's not what you ordered. Um, But are you investigating, I think more importantly, if you've made a medical error recently or something has happened, something potentially, a potential sentinel event has happened. Are you investigating your own level of burnout? I hate that word burnout. I hate it so much. I wish there was something else we could say, but is your personal mental and physical health okay? Are you not prepared to take care of patients' lives these days? Or even in the future, is nursing and medicine not for you? Yes, I know these questions are not easy. But you need to fully ask yourself these questions on a daily basis before placing your hands on another human's life. It's your duty to know you are on top of your game. There is no room for error when it comes to human lives. And sometimes a deep investigation of yourself and your abilities will help you know when it's time to either ask for help, pull away, take time off. We know since COVID things have changed. We don't want you to be involved in something like this where you become complacent, and responsible for the death of a human being. It all could have been preventable. That's a lot of hard talk, and um, I think real talk, in my opinion, you know, and these are the kind of places that you go when you're sitting around a table with other PAs and NPs and and, um, seasoned nurses. Um, You know, when when, you you ask a question like, how you doing? And someone says, oh, I'm doing good. And the person goes like, no, like, really, how how are you doing? How are things? Okay. Because um, I'm not always doing good when I come to work. I'm often, yeah. you know, thinking about, you know, my life outside of the emergency department, what little life I have outside of the <laughs> emergency department, you know, right. but it's there. I like to think about it when I can, you know. Well, and you know, so yeah. Well, Mike- I, I, I have to tell myself. Hey, this is the only place I need to be right now. And, and, and my entire focus and my entire mind needs to be on what's in front of me, who's in front of me right now. And I need to kind of compartmentalize the, the rest of my life for a little bit. And uh, it comes at a cost. It comes at a cost. And I'll kind of talk about that a little more later on, too. Well, you know, I mean, we, we've been friends for a while. And uh, your calls when I'm having a rough time are, are super meaningful to me. So hopefully you all have a Mike Sharma in your life. And uh, I think he's available for consultation between the hours of 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. if you want to call him. 
I charge a problem. very reasonable fee. Yeah. <laughs> and we can put you on a payment plan as well, I suppose. <laughs> All right. Segment four. Let's wrap it up. Yes. On our most recent podcast, we went over guidelines from the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology uh, at Al. Lots of Lots of people jumped on this one, on the evaluation and diagnosis of chest pain. I thought they were really relevant in terms of what we do in the urgent care and the emergency department. We're forever evaluating and diagnosing chest pain. Today, we're going to talk about another set of guidelines from the AHA and the ACC in conjunction with the Heart Failure Society of America on, well, you guessed it, congestive heart failure. These guidelines have a different scope. They're talking about, you know, outpatient treatment, inpatient treatment, decisions on devices and surgery, the the real broad world of congestive heart failure. So understandably, the 150 pages of guidelines are not quite as relevant for us, not fully. That being said, I did learn some new things, hoping that these guidelines, they gave me some points to ponder. I think it's important to go over what's new in terms of what we'll be seeing coming in the front door or rolling in the back door in our heart failure patients and how they're maintained as outpatients, what that team means in terms of what we should be looking for that might be a little bit new we're not used to looking for in these patients, and also to remind ourselves of some pearls and diagnosis and treatment of heart failure. Hmm. So the impact of congestive heart failure is massive. Okay, We know that. And according to the Cleveland Clinic, it is the number one reason for hospital admission for people over the age of 65. The further highlighted some studies that the diagnosis of heart failure knocks roughly 10 years off someone's life. And five-year survival rates are once diagnosed are about 50%. So we know the patients in acutely decompensated heart failure often come to the ED with shortness of breath, severity of dyspnea. It's a major factor in the treatment um, to get into the ED. Whether they're admitted, um, whether they're readmitted, there is a, there's bilateral leg swelling. Don't forget about the other common signs and symptoms like abdominal swelling and large jugular veins in the neck, worsening nighttime urination, and chronic cough, generalized weakness, and fatigue. Here's a great symptom that I'd never heard about before I read these guidelines, bendopnea. We know dyspnea, we know orthopnea, we know tachypnea. What the heck was a bendopnea? This is a new term relatively newly described in the literature of CHF, first introduced in literature in 2014 after I graduated from PA school. This describes the shortness of breath that a lot of CHF patients get when bending forward at the waist, like when they're tying their shoes. And it can last, you know, after 30 seconds or less of bending over, you get a little more short of breath. Physiologically, what's going on, you already have these high ventricular filling pressures in patients with CHF. Bending forward increases those ventricular pressures, causing the shortness of breath. So physiologically, there's a reason for it, okay? You know, some patients, you know, walk in the door with previously diagnosed CHF, which can be helpful sometimes. There are some new, newly emphasized treatment options for people who already have CHF and are being managed as outpatients. One is called ARNES, or angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitors, and a medication you're familiar with out of the diabetes playbook, the SGLT2Is, or sodium mucose transport 2 inhibitors. The one current RNA in the U.S. market is Secubitril Valsartan. The trade name there is Entresto. Some studies suggest that new heart failure patients should start this drug first instead of what was previously recommended before it was, hey, you want to max out on your ACE inhibitor, on your ARB, and then you switch over to an RNA. Some folks are saying, no, go RNA out of the gate. 
The STL2, sorry, T2Is are also nicknamed the Glyphosins because of their shared ending in their generic drug name. They all end in Glyphosin. So I won't go into all those, but some common trade names are Invocana, Farsiga, and Jardian. So those are kind of the three most common SGLT2Is in the United States. These drugs help or seem to help heart failure patients even when they don't have diabetes. So don't assume diabetes in patients taking them. Now, one interesting thing with these drugs is there is a risk of euglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis, meaning someone is in diabetic ketoacidosis, a very you know bad condition here, but they're euglycemic, their sugar levels are normal. There is a risk of this with these SGLT2Is. Um, I promise it'll get less awkward as I keep saying that. <laughs> I'm, I'm really struggling right now, though. So, yeah, I've seen that before a couple times, you know, I practice. So if you're getting weird acidosis in a patient with heart failure and they're on this drug, consider DKA as a possible etiology or some sort of acidosis triggered by this drug, even if the patient's sugar is normal. So fascinating. I've seen commercials for all of these drugs in the last, like, two days. I very rarely watch TV, but I took two days off and I said to myself, everybody else watches TV. Why don't I? So I started watching a couple of shows and mostly the uh, Food Network. And then again, I'm hungry. But um, yeah, commercials for all of these, they mention that specific diabetic issue. So Mike, um, you've been been watching your TV and doing your research, so good for you. Yeah. Um, (laughs) After... Okay, a complete history of phys- and physical examination. The guidelines suggest some testing. We're familiar with ordering labs and imaging, usually chest x-ray, but these guidelines suggest that a comprehensive TTE is the most useful, of course it is, initial diagnostic test given <laughs> the vast amount of diagnostic and pro- prognostic information provided. Um, yeah, diagnostic, uh, very good. <laughs> Not right. therapeutic, though. It's not, <laughs> not ther- prognostic. Not therapeutic. Okay, so Damn. yeah, not quite. Didn't quite get there. So ultrasound is super common. There's no radiation, and if you get a ton of information, you know what you're doing. The guidelines say that ultrasound is preferred. Initial imaging modality for evaluation of patients with suspected heart failure. Um, so whip whip out those ultrasound probes. Shout out to last month's podcast again, where our radiology guidelines for acute shoulder pain are also saying use ultrasound first. Go ultrasound early, yes. Well, how about lab tests? One of the many lab tests we order if we're suspecting CHF is, of course, the BNP, which stands for either brain natriuretic peptide or B-type natriuretic peptide. If you're ever reading CHF literature, uh, you know, if you're trying to wind down after a stressful day with a glass of whatever beverage, and you see the words ventricular natriuretic peptide, that's also referring to BNP. Sounds a lot like BMP, the basic metabolic panel. So that's why I call it the BN peptide. When I'm having that kind of 50-foot view talk with the nursing staff at the start of a patient's encounter, kind of giving them the playbook here, and I say, hey, let's order a BN peptide for this patient. I'm adding that By the way, the Mike, flowers. I have to interrupt you because um, when I order these, um, I'll say BNP, you know, like beat the nurse practitioner, and everybody always laughs, <laughs> so they know what I'm talking about. Sorry. Oh boy. Okay, very good. I'll, I, I won't, I won't try that next time I'm in the ER. I was gonna say I'll try that next time, and I'll get funny looks. So no, I'll, just, <laughs> I'll do my thing. 
It's without a without a doubt, it will make somebody laugh. Okay, all right. Well, hey, uh, as long as I get the laugh, I guess. So I'll go for the laugh next time. Some labs use what's called an NT bro uh, bro uh, bro, bro. science here. NT pro BNP. That's the N terminal pro hormone of BNP. So if you recall, pro hormones. These are precursor chemicals in the body that are usually inactive. Pro BNP is a combination of something called this NT pro BNP and the BNT we usually order. Once the body splits those two molecules apart, you get BNP, which does the work in the body. It's biologically active, and NT pro BNP, which is not active, but it's still measurable. So just kind of know what you're ordering, what, what your labs have. If you're starting in a new emergency department, know what lab result or lab test you guys order for CHF. Yeah. Obesity, not uncommon in patients with CHF, is associated with lower levels of B Nancy peptide. There you go. <laughs> and NT pro BNP, thereby reducing their diagnostic sensitivity. Kidney failure is also known to elevate the levels of BNP and NT pro BNP. So, did you order a B Nancy peptide, get an elevated result, but don't think the patient's in heart failure? So, here's a short list of other common non cardiac etiologies of elevated. BNP, anemia, pneumonia, PE, sepsis, severe burns, sleep apnea, and good old-fashioned old people. <laughs> you know, uh, I like to say that uh, there isn't an old person on this earth that doesn't die before getting a chance to burn one of us in emergency medicine. So <laughs> everyone gets that one shot, you know, so maybe we'll all do that when I'm yeah. older here. Um, yeah. ASEP recommends the following, a BNP level less than 100 or an NT pro BNP level greater than 300, this suggests a diagnosis other than acute heart failure syndrome, while a BNP greater than 500 or an NT pro BNP greater than 1,000, that does suggest heart failure syndrome, although it's just tricky, like we've said. Sorry, Mike, I just want to reiterate for the listeners. Yep. Your, your levels, you said greater than, but you, you mean less than. So okay, so if you're trying to, sorry, if you're trying to rule, yeah, 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 oh, good. So if you're trying to rule out, right, right, BNP less than a hundred, NT pro BNP less than three hundred, these suggest something else. Okay, right, right, right. Okay, yeah, yeah. sorry. Something else other than acute heart failure syndrome. If you are higher than five hundred for BNP, higher than a thousand for NT pro BNP, that does suggest acute heart failure syndrome. So high number, more suggestive. Low number, not suggestive. Uh, suggest something else. In between, it's, uh, yeah, you know, dealer's choice there. It's, it's tough. Beat the nurse practitioner. Okay. Let's say you've got a working diagnosis of heart failure. Now you're thinking about treatment options. If we're dealing with a standard gradual exacerbation of chronic congestive heart failure with elevated blood pressure, IV loop diuretics like furosemide will eventually get someone to pee out fluid. A more intermediate help with someone in pulmonary edema is a vasodilator like nitroglycerin in addition to putting someone on a non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, BiPAP or CPAP. Right, yeah. If you don't want to wait for the furosemide to do its thing, get them on some sort of nitroglycerin. There's different ways to do that, both oral, uh, paste, IV, stuff like that. And there's pros and cons for all those things. How about a patient in which you think CHF is going on, but they're also in cardiogenic shock? What, what shock? It's decreased blood pressure. It's altered mental status. They're cool and clammy. And, and unlike most blood pressure, or sorry, CHF patients, like I said, their blood pressure is low. 
a systolic below 90 or a you know mean arterial pressure below 65 you know I'll be honest I'm not often the one taking care of these patients primarily but it's important to know kind of what you know people usually do order in these cases so dibutamine that's a beta agonist it's often recommended to improve contractility the squeezing of the heart get that mean arterial pressure up somebody already on a beta antagonist, so a drug that would block the effects of dibutamine, what would work for somebody on a beta blocker may be milrinone. Milrinone is going to cause some vasodilation in the pulmonary and the peripheral circulation that decreases your afterload, more blood leaves the heart. You know, these drugs like milrinone and dobutamine and all the drugs that we use for critical care, I have to tell you, if if you're an NP or a PA that spent the last couple of months, you know, just seeing ankles and suturing and really just life hasn't been that critical um, for you. I mean, you did that critical medication refill and turkey sandwich, but you need to go back and remember some of these drugs. And I think it's really important that, honestly, spend some time up in the ICU I'm lucky because I get to teach students and I get to hang out in the ICU and basically just learn whatever it is I want to learn um, and get paid for it, um, but not necessarily make the clinical decisions. So if you have the availability to do that, go do it. It's it's a good refresher. I like that. Okay. Yeah. So the majority of the patients with an acute exacerbation of heart failure are admitted to the hospital. Patients with newly diagnosed heart failure are almost always admitted for a big workup to lock in the cause of their new heart failure, uh, methamphetamines most likely, people with socioeconomic... You have bad high blood pressure, okay? It's not always meth. I mean, I know you work in San Francisco General, but like, you know, (laughs) there's other causes. How much meth did you use? Okay, people with socioeconomic reasons blocking their way to clear follow-up or even a mild exacerbation of established heart failure should also be admitted. These people are in heart failure, Come on. Well, and also they just can't, they don't have a family doctor, yeah. you know, whatever yeah. else. So yeah, I mean, if you can't just, cl- they don't have a clear path. Yes. Yes. But especially after these past two years with entire states and regions of the country going through times where they have no room for their inpatient floors, it's important important to understand that there is a safe route to discharge the patients. I sing that because it's like every time someone gets discharged, I feel so happy. Um, <laughs> ideally to some sort of multidisciplinary heart failure clinic, which are often associated with improved patient-oriented outcomes in mortality and decreased hospitalization. I have a friend of mine that specifically wants to discharge um, patients to a uh, clinic like this Um, He has dreams of it being this just wonderful haven for patients. And it is a good kind of stepping stone into what I'd like to say the rest of the world. But let's talk about some validated pathways that can help us decide whether a heart failure patient might be safe for discharge. There are a couple of different ones, uh, risk scoring methods in the guidelines, but it's important to understand when to use them. And what's difficult is none of them are validated in the setting of the emergency department. They're more appropriate for the use on inpatients. Right. Well, the ones but Mike, listed... but Mike, Mike, yes, like, what yes, if yes. you have a, what if you have a patient in the ER okay. for four days? I mean, <laughs> right, exactly. can you consider that an inpatient admission now? I, yeah, I suppose that's, that's a good long obs there in the ED, <laughs> you know, that, what is that? A 96 hour obs right there. Yeah. So, um, you know, Yes, exactly. In the guidelines, they list a lot of studies uh, on a lot of different risk stratification methods. But again, they're not for us to use. There are some that have been validated for the ED use. And so two of them, one is called the Emergency Heart Failure Mortality Risk Grade. 
Uh, I look at the acronym. I think that like the Ermagerd, you know, Ermagerd, E-H-M-R-G, and the uh, Ottawa Heart Failure Risk Scale, O-H-F-R-S. Um, so the E-H-M-R-G, that risk stratifies on the likelihood of seven-day mortality after ED discharge. Yeah, good to know if someone's going to keel over dead in the next seven days. Probably not something you want to discharge here. That is the preferred risk stratification scale by the authors of an emdocs.net article in 2020. Big shout out to the emdocs.net crew, some of them who live here in Dallas. The OHFRS is the creation of, hey, uh, flashback, Dr. Ian Steele, also known for the Canadian CT rule in addition and, to Sorry, did I, pr- did I pronounce his name incorrectly? It's pronounced Steele. I, I don't know. Uh, Steel or style. You know um, what? Ian, Here, Ian, I'm so sorry. We should have you on the show. Well, you know what? Here's how we would know. You'd listen to the in-depth blog post and podcast by friend of the podcast and fellow EM bootcamp faculty member, Dr. Ken Milne. He had a discussion about the OHFRS. He had Dr. Dr. Ian, Dr. Steele on the podcast. The bottom line conclusion back then in 2017 was the Ottawa Heart Failure Risk Scale can probably help make disposition decisions by accurately predicting. So the other one was seven days. This one predicts 30-day risk of serious adverse events in patients with acute heart failure. However, at that time, it was not yet validated in a randomized controlled trial, and, and that would be the best as far as evidence strength before it really takes on wide use. So these these scales are not as widely used as, let's say, the heart score the well score and per criteria, but there are some scales out there and um, might be interesting to kind of put it into your decision-making process. Now, both systems exclude hemodialysis patients, okay? So you can't use them if your patient is on hemodialysis. The OHFRS has many more exclusion criteria. It's important to understand when you're doing any one of these risk stratification systems in which populations you can actually consider using these scales. We'll have links to the emdocs.net article, the SGM blog and podcast, and the MD Calc pages for all these calculators in our show notes. Again, that is twoview.fireside.fm. It's always the number two. Now, moving on to something sweet. It's no surprise I like to talk. I'm looking forward to speaking at Emerge NP, the American Academy of Emergency Nurse Practitioners, in the first week of May. Yes. Whatever. Uh, what? <laughs> I, I know, right? A, a, a PA at an NP conference, nobody freak out. Okay. Yeah. And I won't even be the only one. There's multiple PAs, I think, <laughs> physicians speaking. It's kind of cool. I'm not sure how many PAs usually speak in past years of this conference, but I think it's great that the conference was so welcoming. So, so full thanks to the staff there. Congratulations. Oh, thank you very much. I'll be talking about uh, ED throughput. Specifically, uh, practical, safe ways to discharge patients with common complaints faster from the ED and save those precious beds. Hope to virtually see you there. It's it's all online, so I'm really looking forward to seeing what the other contributors bring to the table. I'm sure you can get it after the fact as well. So if you miss it, you probably can get it again. Well, listen, in addition to how much I like to talk, I like to write as well. Everybody knows the website Medscape. It's got a cool feature called Medscape Blogs, where they host writing from different medical professionals, including PAs, which is great to see. Not all medical writing websites include PAs, or at least commonly include PAs. As of this past month, they're also including me. So a special thanks to bootcamp faculty alumnus Randy Danielson, PA, for the opportunity. My first article was about how we in medicine should think about, this is where I was talking about earlier here, 
resiliency in terms of ways of how to perform best under pressure, which is important to know ourselves when we're under pressure, under repeated pressure, shift after shift, month after month, year after year. Uh, and there are some resources that I highlight in my article as well for urgent care and uh, emergency medicine practitioners specifically from senior clinicians in the field that I've personally found helpful. So check it out if um, you're looking to get better at working under pressure. The next post probably out by the time this episode drops in the podcatchers. I chose something pretty, uh, you know, uncontroversial, something we can all get behind. Well, something about the travel mask mandate. Now, I'm pretty happy it's gone, but how I'll also be wearing N95 in many public places regardless. I'd love to get your feedback on my thoughts. You can just search for my name and Medscape blog in whatever search engine you like. It should probably pop right back up. Links will be in the show notes as well. Martha, what you got? Well, first, a side note. Uh, if you haven't fit tested in a while, refit test. I just got refit tested. I don't know what happened to my face. Either it got fatter or it got thinner, but whatever. The mask I was using doesn't work anymore. Huh. So uh, I would say refit test. Make sure you have the right one on. So Fair enough. Um, I personally will still be wearing a mask on a plane, um, but that's just me. Okay. So this month, I like this topic. I thought, you know, this is our chance to talk about things. Um, well, I like all of our topics, but this one I felt really <laughs> excited about. I wanted to talk about something super important to emergency medicine, and that is our love and support of our EM resident doctors and potential new doctors for our, our ER in the future. These doctors are amazing. They work for pittance. They work shifts that truly are the pits, and they are the pit. They work hard and they need us as a team to help them grow, learn, see patients, pursue their dreams in EM. They will be our future leaders and and our partners. So I want to highlight an article in the 2022 April edition of the BMC Medical Ethics Platform. It is an open access journal publishing site with original uh, peer-reviewed research articles in relation to the ethical aspects of biomedical research, clinical practice, uh, professional uh, choices and conduct, medical technology, healthcare systems, and health policies. Super cool. You can totally nerd out. In April, they wrote about scheduling interviews for medical students who will hopefully go on to do their residency in uh, different areas of medicine. All people looking to get into a career in emergency medicine need a strategy to increase their likelihood of matching, and they require help from us all to do that. And I like this study because it looked at the time of day for match success. The current study looked at how the impact of the date and time of the interview during the interview season have on candidates' respective interview scores. And to be honest, um, after looking at all this, it doesn't matter if you're a, a resident or anyone applying for a job, uh, which is why I like the spin on this. Be prepared for anything, any time of day, no matter what, even if you want to go work um, in another field of medicine or anything else for that matter. It all starts with the job interview. Timing of when you do the interview, at least for match success here, doesn't matter. So uh, they they looked at the PGY13 ACGME accredited, accredited EM residency program in Philadelphia. The date of the interview and time was recorded, morning versus afternoon, um, and a linear regression analysis was performed to determine if there was a statistically significant difference in overall interview scores based on that time of day. And like I said, there was no statistically significant effect on the time of day or date on residency interview scores. 
So you can take a look. We'll put the link in the liner notes. I think that um, overall, I would consider this information useful for APPs and nurses too, because as I said, an interview is an interview and you don't have to get all bent out of shape if it's in the morning or in the afternoon. And, and remember, this is the piece that is really important of why I brought it up. The residency match process is perhaps one of the most stressful milestones of medical school, particularly the residency interview. And, and we need to support these people that are going through this, just like you would support a nurse that's been practicing for a long time and wanting to be an NP. You got to say, you got to pull them into the room and say, hey, like I'm about to do an LP. I know you're going to graduate soon. You know, come on in here. Um, These are all important things we do as a team. And um, there are lots of studies that look at stuff like this. But in the end, uh, if you have a friend that's going to an interview, Maybe offer to meet them for coffee and a chat before going because it never hurts to have a friend in EM. Oh. All right. It's time for our two-view trivia answer. First off, let's talk about what you win if you answer our question correctly. So this month, 20% off our July Original Emergency Medicine Bootcamp course. It's not too late, folks. I want you to pause the podcast right now. If you're not already coming to our course, Pause the podcast, put in a work absence for that time of the month. It's the end of July, July 25th through 30, I believe. Um, so you win this prize. You come join us in Las Vegas this July. You get 20% knocked off the price of this course or, frankly, any course. You already come to our course. You already met us before and, and done the original podcast. You can do the, uh, the original boot camp. You can do the advanced course. You can do high-risk emergency medicine. You can do emergency medicine at a acute care where you go to other cool locations and learn about uh, you know the the practice changing literature for the past year so all kinds of applications here um so go ahead with uh, last month's question and answer if you don't mind here martha okay in what year and by whom developed the first handheld ultrasound wand in the usa so there's a little history here. The ADR-2130 designed by Marty Wilcox was the first portable ultrasound unit commercially available in the U.S., and it was released in 1975. And the winner to that question was Cat Lemons NP. So congrats, Cat. So now on to this month's Crestione. I, I, I want to just search real quick for the what ADR-2130. I'm just so curious what it looked like. I imagine this like kind of like a car phone, like these big <laughs> giant phones, you know, like uh, back in the day. It's like, yeah, I'm on a car phone. Like it's, it doesn't, doesn't look Zach too Morris. bad. It's, oh, it looks like a stapler. Yeah. He's like holding a stapler over this person's yeah. belly. It's him. interesting. There he is. That's mm-hmm. cool. Okay, very neat. So good good to look up there and see that uh, picture of history. Well, here is uh, some more history for you, this time on pediatric hepatitis. And this is our new two-view trivia question. There's always two parts to our questions and answers. In the 1960s, an American school for mentally disabled children became infamous for research conducted there on its residents. What was the name of its school, and in what state was the school located? Mm, I like it. Very cool. All right. It's time to wrap things up. We're... Oh my gosh, Mike, we are right on time. We're right on exactly. time. Wow. We are, we are ending exactly what we meant to. Wow. Okay. So for more information about us and our faculty, visit our website featuring all our upcoming courses at www.ccme.org and consider coming to see us this summer. We've already told you all about it. 
Period. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Yeah, I like it. Good. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of The Two of You. You can subscribe and rate us on Apple iTunes Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Search for Two View Emergency. That's the number, Two View Emergency. It'll come right up. Ratings help us climb the charts so that other clinicians get some Two View goodness like you are right now. If you like YouTube and want to see the video blog instead, see Martha's fetching necklace that matches my fetching polo shirt. My mom got this for me. Thank you, mom, if it's great. Um, then go ahead and search for a Center for Medical Education, and you can catch the video version. Don't forget a website where you can go next level on any of our topics from any of our episodes, including all the papers and sites we refer to. That's twoview.fireside.fm. Our audio and video engineers are Ricky Bucata and Dave Pett. Show notes are by Meg Dipple. And lastly, just looking at the chat here, I'd like to give a shout out to David Pecora, who said something extremely important here. To err is to be human. Right. We all make mistakes, unfortunately. Well, hopefully you don't make any mistakes that end in death today. So be prepared to go out and have a great day. Thank you for tuning in. Friends in EM, share this podcast with a friend. Share your thoughts via email. And thank you for sharing your time with us today at The Two View. Have a good day and a great shift. 